All right, thank you, Val. That was really, really good. Sometimes I think the children's uh, lesson is better than the preaching, so you guys do a really good job. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13 today. And uh, as you're turning there, I'll uh, just recap a little bit of what we're doing. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, uh, we learned about uh, two crucial things about our identity. Number one, that we are blessed in Jesus and that Jesus heals us from our divisions and our sins. And that that is the idea why we're not strangers in church anymore. We talked about that last week, about how uh, the concept of a stranger or someone feeling on the outside should be foreign to church. And so just, just a quick plug, if you're wondering, like, what is the best way to kind of implement that verse in my life? I would have really encourage you to go to the guess who's coming for dinner thing. Guys, it's free food. You, you cannot complain ever with free food. So I plan to go every single time. So <clears throat> 20 pounds, here I come. So should be good. Uh, so uh, with that, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter uh, 3 verses 1 to 13 today, and uh, the first half of Ephesians talks about our standing with our Christ, and so we're almost finished talking about our identity. Uh, but chapter, uh, chapter 3 kind of has a little bit of a detour to it. And so uh, it starts out in chapter or verse 1 by saying this, For this reason, and that was referring to everything that we just talked about in chapter 2, I, Paul, am a prisoner of Jesus, Christ Jesus on behalf of Gentiles. So, uh, are you Gentiles? And so in order to uh, explain the text today, I actually have to tell you a story. Are you guys okay with that? Stories? I like stories. Stories are good. This story, though, starts with a temple. You guys remember this picture? Remember what I told you about this uh, The picture a really long time ago about how this is how uh, the temple looked in Jesus' day, roughly. It's, it's not an actual picture, um, because that temple is, is actually kind of destroyed. But this is what the temple would have looked like in Jesus' day. And do you remember me telling you that uh, that temple had various different courts where various different kinds of people could be? And one of them was called the Court of the Gentiles. Do you remember me saying that? You guys remember me telling you that? Yeah. And so you remember that if you were a Gentile, in other words, you didn't have any, uh, uh, you didn't come from the nation of Israel. If you were African or Asian or European or anywhere else, or Roman or Greek, that's as far as you could go as a part of this temple. And our story actually starts with somebody actually crossing that line. Okay? You remember that Paul is, he, he comes to faith in Jesus and he's going throughout the entire Roman world telling people that they can accept Jesus as the Messiah. And word gets back to the Jewish community, people in Jerusalem, that that is happening, and, and they don't really like it. And so the story is actually, you can find it in Acts chapter uh, 20, 21, and 22. Is, uh, what winds up happening is all these rumors are starting to get spread about Paul. That Paul, this guy that's going on to the Greeks and the Romans and telling them they can accept Jesus, word is getting back about that. The, the, nation, the Jewish leaders don't like that. And so what winds up happening is they start spreading rumors. Rumors like Paul doesn't believe in the Old Testament. 
Rumors like Paul is telling them that the temple is just really not a thing. It's bad. It's evil. And uh, rumors like Paul is telling, them, telling people not to obey the law of God. And so on a trip to Jerusalem, Paul uh, comes back and he's, he's meeting with other believers. And he he he's hearing that there are other rumors that are growing around that he's seeing all these things. And so in an effort to prove that these rumors aren't true, he makes a special trip to the temple in order to prove and kind of dispel any rumors that are there. And on that, this is where the story picks up in Acts chapter 21, verses 27 and 28 says this, is while Paul was at the temple, the Jews from Asia, now that's important because you remember where Ephesus is? Where's Ephesus? In the province of Asia, okay? Seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. More, however, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the who? The Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had uh, brought, brought him into the temple. Then the whole entire city of Jerusalem was stirred up and people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gate were, were shut. So basically, here's the deal. Is that Paul goes to the temple. He, he's trying to prove to everyone that he's not, that these rumors aren't true. And basically, they see him there. These, 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 Asian, these Asian Jewish people see Paul there, know what he's been doing in the, in the province of Asia. And they don't like it. And they see him with other Greeks uh, or Ephesians. And they assume that, they have, that he, they have brought him into the temple and they crossed that line. Okay? So remember what I said? Court of the Gentiles. And, the, and, the, and then after that, they weren't allowed to cross that line. Paul was being accused of making people cross that line. Like non-Jews. Which wasn't true. Trophimus was only in the city. They didn't actually see him there. And so what winds up happening is an all-out riot. See, it was so violent and so bad that the armed guard had to come in and break it up. The ensuing riot led Paul into a legal dilemma from which he used his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And now Paul was in prison in Rome, waiting for his trial before Caesar. And then his whole journey to Rome is wild. You can read about it in Acts if you want. The Jews are so mad at him that they plot an assassination attempt while he's traveling. And the entire Roman legion had to protect him. Do you imagine, you know, being a pastor or a missionary or whatever, and you're just telling people about Jesus, and there are people that are spreading rumors about you not true, and they are so incensed and violent that the entire Canadian army has to come to protect you. Well, maybe not the entire Roman army, but you get the idea, right? Is that this, this is crazy. His whole journey is wild. And there he waits for about two to three years where he is appealing to Caesar. 
And he goes through things like shipwrecks, and he goes on a weird island, and then he gets bit by snakes, and everyone thinks he's going to die. It's quite the story. Someone should make a movie out of it. In fact, I'm pretty sure someone did make a movie out of it, right? But I want you to go back to this guy right here. Uh, I want you to uh, remember this guy. Verse 9, and it says this. For they previously had seen Trophimus the Ephesian. Now, we don't know much about him. All we know is that he was with Paul and that he was from the Ephesian church. So I would guess that here's what happened. Trophimus sees what's happening to Paul. And he goes and he sees, he sees the big kerfuffle, the big riot, the big issue. And then after everything is semi-calmed down, he travels back to Ephesus, goes to the church in Ephesians and says, Guys, you wouldn't believe the wild thing that I just saw that happened to Paul. And then he would detail everything that would happen to Paul and the fact that Paul was in prison and the fact that Paul was suffering. And what wound up happening was this, is that they heard the news of how bad Paul was suffering and they began to lose heart. How do I know that they began to lose heart? Because that's what it says in chapter, or Ephesians chapter 3, verse uh, 13. It says this, Paul says this, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. And so the reason that I'm telling you that story is to kind of give you a little bit of context of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is about Paul encouraging the church in Ephesus not to give up because of suffering. Okay? That they are seeing what is happening to him. They're hearing the horror stories. Remember, this is about two or three years now. He's in prison. He's writing a letter to the Ephesian church. So much things have happened to him. The shipwreck, the, 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 the assassination attempt. Everything is happening to him. And the church goes like this. Our pastor is suffering. What are we going to do? And they begin to lose heart. They begin to lose to give, they think about giving up. So the main idea I would tell you is this, is that chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, tells us this, is if the Holy Spirit would speak something into our spirits today, it would be that if you're trying your best to follow Jesus and carry out his will for your life, and the actions that you take have led you to a place of suffering, please do not pack it in. Do not lose heart. This is, a, this is a plea from Paul not to give up following Jesus because of the bad things that have happened. Now, here's the thing about suffering. I don't own the corner on suffering at all, uh, meaning I don't have... There are many, many good theologians that talk about the relationship of God between suffering, but here's what I do know. I do know that it's not always God's will that you suffer all the time, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 says this. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing what? Good. Then it is, 
if God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. So not, I'm not trying to be simplistic about suffering because I know there's many, many different causes of suffering. But in this text, there's, there, you can suffer for doing something bad and you can suffer from doing something good. And God is saying through the, the Apostle Peter, if you're going to suffer, I would rather you suffer for doing the right thing, the godly thing, the true thing, than I would for you to suffer for doing something wrong, moral, or evil. Okay? And so here's what I'm going to say about that, is there are going to be times when uh, you are going to want to do the right thing. You're going to want to follow Jesus and you are trying your best to love him and you're, you're going to do something good. You're trying to carry out his will in your life and you might pay a price. You might not. You might do something and God has convicted you with something to heart. Maybe it's to pray for people or to serve or to confess or to have people over or to love people that are unlovable or whatever it is. And you might do that and there might be no cost at all. You might be totally and utterly fine. You might be blessed. I remember his time as a, as a teenager, uh, the, the, the youth pastor challenged me to admit to someone at high school that I was a Christian. So the next, the, the following Monday, I'm praying and I'm, I'm pretending that I'm, I feel like I'm pretending I'm sick. I'm getting all na- uh, nervous because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell somebody that I follow Jesus and I'm prepared for the worst, right? And the worst never happened, right? In fact, the opposite happened. People were like, oh, that's so good. You're a Christian. That's so, and I had a very positive experience. Sometimes when you follow God, you're going to have a very positive experience. Sometimes, though, you're going to pay. Okay? And you might pay a little or you might pay a lot. But you might pay. Something might suffer. You might suffer. You might, you might experience some sort of neg- negativity. Someone cuts off the relationship with you. Someone doesn't want to be your friend. It, it results in you losing revenue and you know, whatever. There's just some sort of suffering that is going on. Okay? And sometimes the price will be so big and it will hurt so much that you will think about giving up. That packing it in, that this isn't worth it. And this is what is happening to the Ephesian church. Most of us, at some point, who will have lived a faithful life life to Jesus, will will carry out an action in being faithful to Jesus that will result in experiencing a suffering so bad that it will cause you to reconsider if following Jesus for your life is worth it. And there's something, and in that, I want to say that there's something worse than suffering, and that's suffering and losing heart, isn't it? Here's the thing that I know. I know that some of you are going through a situation right now where you feel like losing heart. Nobody around you knows this, but you stay in bed all day watching reruns or binge-watching Netflix. And that's because you're depressed. But then you put on your best Sunday clothes and you come to church and you put on a face, but deep down in your heart, you're discouraged. And you're going through difficult things. Your kids are off the rails. Your spouse has passed away. Maybe your marriage isn't doing so good. And it's a mess. And it seems like God is silent. And what you feel like doing is you you feel like stop, you feel like giving up fighting for those things. 
You stop fighting for your marriage. You stop fighting for your kids. You stop fighting for your health. And you stop fighting for the joy. You stop fighting for your own future. You begin to lose heart. And what Jesus is saying to you and I today through the text is if you're trying your best to follow Jesus and you carry out his will for your life and the actions take you down a road that lead to suffering, do not lose heart. I know that right now it feels like day by day you're just hanging on barely. I know that some of you... uh, are fighting depression and discouragement and despair. And I know that some of you are on the border of hopelessness. And I know that the last thing you want to hear is more points and principles from your pastor. That you've had enough self-help and enough self-talk. But God could use this season in your life to make you more like Jesus. And let me say, if one of the great goals of your life is to become more like Jesus, even though it's a horrible season... It could also be, and I don't want to make light of this, a great season of your life. Again, don't, if you're going through suffering, don't waste it. And that's what chapter 3 is about. You see, Paul is suffering pretty bad and he hasn't lost any heart. Why hasn't he lost any heart? In chapter, in verse 12, it says that he actually has boldness and confidence through our faith in him. And so the question that I have is like when he's going through all this suffering, what makes him so confident and bold in a time of suffering because of Jesus? And it's because, and that's because I think of this, is that confidence and courage are a result of the convictions that you and I hold. I love to talk more about that, but I want you to understand something that that he is using chapter 3 as a way of saying this. And I'm going to read through it here in a second. But he's, he's using chapter 3 in the first three verse, 13 verses to say this. Look, guys, I know I'm suffering, but my suffering is actually worked out for the good, and I don't want you to lose heart because of that. And so there are five convictions that I want you to see that he tells the Ephesian church that I want you two to hold on to if you actually are, are feeling pretty, pretty down now. And I'm just going to go through them really quick and then I'll explain them. Number one, Jesus gives your suffering meaning, verse one. Number two, your suffering helps, is, could help with the, is the benefit for the good of other people. Number three, suffering helps you mature your character. Number four, suffering helps advance the story of Jesus. And number five, Suffering is a chance for the church to rise up. Those are all things that he says in those 13 verses. And I want you to know that those are the things that you hold on to when you think that you are about to give up, when you're going to think about backing it in. So let me just talk about the first one uh, really quick, and that's this, is that that when when you feel like you are about to lose heart, please understand that Jesus brings meaning to your suffering. Listen, to, listen again to verse one. It says this, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of who? Christ Jesus. So Paul is not a prisoner 
of the Romans. He's not a prisoner of the Jews. He's not a prisoner of anything else. He's a prisoner of Jesus. He actually thinks that Jesus has some sort of plan and purpose and ministry for that. And I can't, and I want to be careful to say this because I don't want to be, I don't want to sound like a, a cliche or something trite, but I do believe that what is going on specifically in this text is that Paul believes his imprisonment is there because of Jesus. God has a plan, God has a calling, God has a set sort of goal or achievement that, that he is, has in Paul's imprisonment. And I know that might be a little bit hard to understand, so let me back up and explain it a little bit. Before Paul was in prison, before he made his trip to Jerusalem, it says in uh, 21 that, he, uh, he was warned about this. It says this, Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Abagais came from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his hands around the feet and said, The Holy Spirit says... In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the, over, the, the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When the church heard this, we and the people there pleaded for Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then, listen to this. This is what Paul said. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am not, all, not only ready to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, he gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. That's a crucial part. After this, we set our way to Jerusalem, and then he got arrested. It seems like Jesus had a meaning and an intention and purpose for bringing him to prison. It seems like his imprisonment was divinely inspired, that God brought a meaning or purpose out of something that was suffering. And James, here's what I want you to catch, and this is very, very crucial for us, is that other religions, I'm getting ahead of myself, let me, let me explain this. James tells us the end result of a world of sin is death. Remember what it says in James, for, I, for God does, when tempted, no one should say that God has tempted me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. But, and we are all tempted by our evil desire, and when temptation gives birth to sin, sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to what? Death. The end result of any sin, of any kind of evil that happens, is a world of lifelessness and death and destruction and despair. I'm not talking about growing old and dying. I'm talking about that specific sin will eventually lead to the, the end result when sin is unbridled, when sin is um, unchained, when God does not restrain the sin and just leaves it in to, to become this whole mess, the end result is death. Take jealousy, for example. What was the very first murder created in the Bible about? Jealousy. Or take example of uh, David and uh, David's affair with Bathsheba. What wound up happening in that story? Both 
both uh, the husband died and the baby died. The end result of, of evil is a world that is lifeless and gross and barren. But here's what I want you to understand, is when we are looking at suffering the, the, and how God is in control of that, God takes the suffering. He takes something that is meant to destroy and beat you up and leave you lifeless and brings life and some, a purpose out of that. Think about the cross, Okay. The cross before Jesus came was not a symbol of hope. It was a symbol of the worst kind of suffering imaginable. And Jesus turns around and gives the suffering on the cross meaning by using it to be the thing that saves us. You see, we have a God who, not, who suffers with us. Suffering shows us that God has dreams and yearns for a better world for us. And God is not content with, the, with this world, and he wants us to have a better world, and God, God's plans are bigger than better. And what that says is that our suffering and our experience in suffering is going somewhere, that it has an intention. No other worldview gives you a God who can identify with your suffering and give it meaning in the same way. I want you to think really quickly about the three most popular idea ways that North Americans deal with suffering. There's an atheistic way, a new age way, and a karma way. The atheist way says that evil is real, but God doesn't exist because of evil. Okay? So how, do you, how does that help with suffering? It doesn't. If you say that evil is real, but God isn't, what happens when you are suffering? You have no resources to draw from. So what winds up happening is if you're an atheist and you're suffering, you wind up borrowing from religions some sort of answer. So what do people say on Facebook when they see someone going through something bad? Thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. I'm sending you good vibes. Oh my gosh. Like, but you know, that is a strictly religious idea and spiritual idea, not an atheistic idea. You want to know why? Because you, the atheism has nothing to give you when you're suffering. The other way is to say that uh, there is a new age way to say, which is to say that God is real, but your suffering is an illusion. Okay? Or there's a third way, which is to say that your suffering is because of some great evil that you did in the past life. Imagine coming to church and you miscarried. And I said, that's because you did something wrong. How would that take? How many of you would be talking to the board about that? <laughs> yeah, a few of you, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Atheism, New Age, and karma, all things that our society uses to deal with suffering don't hold a candle to the fact that we have a God that takes our suffering and says, he's not encouraging you to suffer and he's not telling you to avoid it. He envelops it and gives you meaning. That's why Paul, when he starts out, was saying, I am a prisoner, not of the Jews, not of the Romans, but of Jesus. Jesus gives your suffering meaning. Please remember that the next time you feel like giving up. Number two, there is a, Paul says is that he believes that the reason that he hasn't lost hope is that he believes that his suffering is a benefit to the other. See, what happens is that 
when we're suffering and we're hurting, our gaze is usually inward, and all of a sudden we lose sight of others. We forget that our people are hurting too. And other people who are suffering go, yes, this is hard for a season for me, but it's a hard season for us. And this is, and I'm really amazed by the fact that Paul is in prison again, not because he did anything wrong, but because he didn't stop talking about Jesus. He was working for others. Listen to what it says here. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of the who? Gentiles. I'm, I'm a prisoner on behalf of you. Now you need to understand this. Prior to him becoming a Christian, Paul would have hated, hated Gentiles. These are the non-Jews. He has in no way, in any way, been empathetic or compassionate towards those who didn't share his racial, cultural, or religious heritage. And then he meets Jesus, and all of a sudden he realizes it's not about Jew and Gentile, it's about Jesus. And he receives a new identity in Christ, and in Christ he gets reconciled together with those of his ancestors. And what Paul is saying here is that his affliction is very purposeful. It's for the benefit of others. I don't know if I have it on the screen here, but going down uh, verse 3, it says this, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have said briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been made revealed now to the holy apostles and prophets by the spirits. He's saying that what he's about to disclose right now was concealed right up until this time. And this is the mystery. This is the mystery that Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Okay? So remember what we said way back in Ephesians chapter 1 about how you're blessed. And one of the things that we said was that the blessing was knowing the mystery. Does anyone recall what the mystery was? That he would bring all things under him. And that's a theme that runs through the book of Ephesians. You see, Ephesians, what he's really trying to do is he's taking these Jews and these Gentiles and he's trying to get the church to be like one church. Okay? It admits this huge racial divide that is going on. And so the first three chapters are about him reorganizing or saying your identity isn't that you're Greek or that you're Jewish. Your identity is in Jesus. That's why he spent so long talking about it. So the mystery that he's talking about is simply this. Is that... The mystery is that the G Jesus just isn't for the people of Israel. He's for everybody. Right? That's, that's the great mystery. That's the thing. And I don't, I don't know if you've caught it, but he mentions the word mystery three times. He says that and he, every time, uh, every, I don't know, yeah, I highlighted there. He's a mystery, mystery, mystery. And then every time he talks about what happened in relation to that, he says, First, the mystery was revealed to me. Secondly, I was given insight to understand it. And third, I was what? I was made a minister. So he's saying, listen, I discovered something. God discovered, I discovered this mystery. God, God revealed that there was a mystery to me. He helped me understand it, but also he gave me a job to do. He gave me, I'm supposed to do this, and it's a calling to do it. Okay. 
Paul uses, <clears throat> and what I want to say is that, uh, <clears throat> you see, for many people, Jesus is still a mystery. And you know what that means. They've never heard of him. And they don't know with him. And you and I walk through a life, and if you would know and love Jesus, you need to understand that there are many people who don't know and love Jesus, and they are a total mystery to him. And he's, Paul is saying, I am in jail because I want people to come to know Jesus, and my suffering is an opportunity for me to testify about Jesus. Okay? The idea is uh, presented similarly. I don't know if you, you know this, but uh, I'm trying to... Uh, later on in, a, in a Philippians. A year later, he's still in prison, Paul writes the letter of Philippians, and he speaks about the same issue. He says, For brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant of my chains. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really resulted to advance the gospel. Same situation as what we're reading here. And he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm here for others. My suffer- the reason I haven't lose heart now is because this is an opportunity to help others. So my question for you today is this. Is that when you are suffering, how could you use your suffering to help others overcome and know Jesus? How could you use your affliction to help others come to know and grow in Jesus? For those who have been afflicted, and you are going through a period of suffering right now, I want you to understand that suffering brings a powerful credibility to you. And this is why sometimes the most powerful ministries are born out of the deepest afflictions. Someone has gone through something terrible, and then by the grace, God has, has they've learned some things, and they, they tell their story, and others flock to them and say, that sounds like my life. Could you help me? Afflicted for others, good. That's what Paul is saying. Don't lose heart. I'm here because this is for your good. Thirdly, I want you to understand that Paul hasn't lost heart because this conviction, oh, that's way far in advance. Uh, he believes that his conviction um, helps mature him. Listen to verse 8. To me, though I am I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And I don't think that's false humility. I don't think he's saying, oh, uh, <clears throat> that ain't nothing, I'm... I'm, I'm, so, I'm, I'm nothing, and when really he knows he's better, it's, that's not what's going on. You have to understand what is going on here. Prior to his conversion, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He comes to people of God only, he comes to God only after doing considerable harm to the people of God. And you have to see, remember that at the time, Christianity is relatively small, Okay? It's big, like it's more than three hills big. We're told that when Peter preached, 3,000 people came to know Jesus. But it's not like billions of people big at this point like it is, it is now. Okay? So I want you to understand that you're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a member of Israel. You come to faith in Jesus. And then you hear of this guy that's taking away families and 
your friends and loved ones, and all of a sudden he came to faith in Jesus, and all of a sudden you are, you are singing from the hymnal beside the guy that murdered your husband. How many of you would have a little bit of a tough time with that? Of course you would. So I want you to understand that when he says that I am the least of all the saints, Paul was very mindful of his great sin. And it's from that perspective we find himself overwhelmed by God's grace that God would still try to use him. Okay? What do you see here is that Paul is suffering and he's ministering, but he's also maturing, he's growing. Do you see, do you see it in him? He says, I am a minister of God's grace. Before he came to Jesus, it would have been, I, I'm a right, I'm entitled to, I have this self-righteousness. But now he's saying, I've done all this, I, I, I've, I've had a horrible past, and yet I, get, I can't believe I still get to do this. There's a humility there. Are you seeing it? All right. So my question for you, friend, is how could your affliction grow, help you grow spiritually in Christ Jesus? What is, what is the thing that you could grow from in learning whatever it is that you're suffering from, whatever it is you're about to lose heart from? What is the thing about it that could mo- draw you closer to God's heart? Okay. Thirdly, uh, there is a conviction that his suffering makes plain to everyone the good news of Jesus. This for spreading the gospel. Okay? Is that well, here's all of a sudden here's what happens is you have you have everyone talking around the palace about Jesus. Have you heard about the pastor in jail? Have you heard why he's imprisoned? What is the issue surrounding him? Well, he seems to think that a man named Jesus was God. He seems to think that we're all sinners and need a savior. He seems to think that this man, Jesus, died on the cross and he, that he rose from death and he ascended into heaven and that he's going to judge the living and the dead and that he calls all men everywhere to repent. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what race or creed or tongue and you're supposed to give your life to Jesus. Really, that's what he believes. Huh. I'm like, and I, don't know, uh, I, don't know if it, I don't know if this is the best illustration, but this is the one I can think of. You, you do recall, wherever side you stick on this, there were pastors that, that, that went to jail for different things that happened the past two years. Right? And what, whether you agree about whether that was right or wrong, the one thing it did do is it did bring publicity to them, didn't it? Right? And Paul is saying in the same way, this, the, the imprisonment has brought, the controversy surrounding my imprisonment has given me an opportunity to share Jesus. That's, not, that's another reason why he hasn't lost heart. Going on, and lastly, it's this. I want to end in with this. Paul isn't losing heart because his suffering results in the church rising up to the occasions. It says this in verse 10. So that through the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I want to say this. The ta- task of the church is to make known the wisdom of God to everybody. The task of the church is to proclaim Jesus in every city, in every rural municipality on earth. But to, and I think that, and you might be thinking, well, what, is, what does it mean to bring it to every kind of heaven, uh, the heavenly places? Well, you might be thinking that only just means the people on earth. But I want you to understand, it's, it's not just 
The people on earth that Jesus is saying the church needs to proclaim the gospel to. It's this declaration in the heavenly what? Realms. Okay. And remember what we talked about that, right? What are the heavenly realms? The heavenly realms is a reference to the spiritual world. In, in, in Ephesians, it's used in one of two ways. It's used to describe the place where God dwells and rules. So that would be heaven. But it's also talking about angels and demons. Okay? When Peter was talking about salvation and that the Old Testament prophets were searching for the best way to bring the message... Uh, he says this, is that the gospel was also made known uh, <clears throat> to the angels who looked into these things. Okay? Angels have always been fascinated by the gospel, and they want to know everything they can about it. Why wouldn't they? After all, from the beginning of creation, God created the physical world for his glory. And the gospel, this mystery that then the angels are like, well, how does it bring glory to God? And the answer is that everything unites under Jesus. Demons are also interested in the, in the physical world, uh, how this brings the glory. Then they want to make sure that it would never occur to us that it would happen. And so led by Satan, Satan himself leads humanity into sin. So what I'm trying to say is that in verse 10, the church is proclaiming the gospel to everyone, every living creature. Mark tells us that a version of the Great Commission is that you are to go out and to preach the gospel to all creation. Okay, Now that doesn't mean rocks and trees and get saved. Okay, I'm not saying that. Okay, But he is saying it. That, that, that all of creation, men, women, black, white, Canadian, uh, American, European, Ukrainian, everybody, angels, demons, is made aware of the glory of God. Knows his wisdom. It reminds me, I'm going to do a tangent right here, but it, it reminds me of Matthew 16, verse 18, which says this. And I tell you, this is Jesus talking, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And what I think is so cool about that verse is, is first of all, I think many of us misinterpret that verse, is that the picture of the church, the the word picture going on is is that there's a holy huddle, there are a bunch of Christians huddling in the corner of the church somewhere, well, the armies of Satan are trying to get in, and they can't. But that's actually not true, okay? When you look at a gate, when you look at two opposing armies, okay, and one is besieging the city and the one is defending the city, which side has the gate? The one, the one defending, doesn't it? Right? Def- gates are a defensive measure. They're not an offensive measure. Hey, have you ever watched Braveheart or any of those movies and say, oh, we got to besiege the city. We forgot the gates. Nobody does that, right? Gates are purely a defensive measure. So in this instance, who do the gates belong to? They belong to the powers of hell. So the image isn't of Christians hiding and Satan coming down. The image is the other way around, where the church, we're led by Jesus Christ, is going into the darkness, is going into the places where people are broken and hurting and sharing the good news of Jesus and breaking down the barrier and gates of hell, and the gates of hell are not able to overcome it. 
In other words, the gospel goes in and helps people come out and knows Jesus. That's what it means by saying, I want to make you made the manifold wisdom of God being known. And Paul, this is the roundabout way of me saying this, is Paul is in prison, and now it's the time for the church to do Paul's job. Okay? To rise up, to be able to go in and share the good news of Jesus. Paul's suffering allows the church to pick up where he left off. And you remember what I told you about the Ephesian church? It became exactly that. The gospel went out not because of Paul, but because the believers in Ephesus rose to the occasion and let everyone know about the manifold wisdom of God. So, listen, like, I know that that might have been quite a bit, but I also want you to understand that there are times when you will suffer. There are all times when you will lose heart. And I want you to understand that uh, in those moments, I want you to remember, no, not, hey, no, not yet. <laughs> uh, I want you to remember that if you are suffering and your suffering is a direct result of following God, you must understand that your suffering has a meaning, that it can benefit others, that it can mature your character, and it can let the church rise up. Okay? I know, thank you, I know that some of us have a hard time talking about suffering, but being willing to explore the question of, of God and suffering prepares you ahead of time. If you kind of shrug your shoulders and avoid the question, when suffering comes, it will hit you hard and you won't be prepared for it. And you might consider walking away from Jesus in that instance, and let me say this, if you do wind up losing your faith because of suffering, I want, you to, I want you to consider this. It might not be Jesus that let you down, but the fact that you put your trust in something else other than Jesus, family or tradition or religiousness, <clears throat> and you might lose your faith. But you know what? I want to say that I actually may be God's gift to you. Any faith lost because of suffering is not a faith worth keeping. Losing your faith actually in that sense might be God's gift to you. And only when you jettison underground and untrue reliance on faith and replace it with Jesus on the cross can you withstand suffering. And I don't think that there's a worldview out there that prepares you better for a hurt and pain other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is that where we are, he has been through where we're going. He has conquered death and sin and hell. And he's alive to help, and he's alive to help us and to help others. He sends them to us that we might be a help to them as we learn to grow and be a part of others. So please, please, this morning, if you are considering losing heart over Jesus Christ, my, 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 my passion is, thanks bud, my, my, my plea for you is not to. Please remember that your suffering has a meaning, that it can benefit others, and that it can help you grow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your, good, your goodness to us. I thank you so much that you are not a God who who hasn't entered into suffering with us, but you know exactly what it means to walk through um, uh, pain and trial. And I know, God, that you bring meaning and purpose and something good 
to our lives. So help us never to lose heart, but to trust in you. And the whole church said, amen.